Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're talking about food. The climate is changing, and the way America grows food will change along with it. What I'm seeing is a lot of smart agriculture. Farmers and ranchers, fishermen saying, I'm not going to have all of this land, all of this pristine water. I need to do things smarter than I've done it in the past. One growing priority is protecting the soil. The recipe? A compost cocktail including everything from leftover food to cow manure. We see an increase in the soil carbon storage, not just from the stuff we added in that compost, but also from the plants that are growing. Everyone from farmers to beer brewers are getting into the act. Up next on Climate One. is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. These Climate One conversations were recorded in 2014 and 15 for a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. Unpredictable weather has always been the farmer's Achilles heel, and the weather is getting wilder, stressing water supplies and changing where crops can grow. How do we address food security for a growing global population? One approach is getting back to basics, protecting the soil, growing food for people, not for cows, and cutting down food waste. Simple solutions can create a big payback. Pleased to have with us today three food experts. Jonathan Foley is the executive director of the California Academy of Sciences. He also penned a cover story for National Geographic magazine on the new food revolution. Karen Ross is secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture and a former chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And Helene York is an executive with a company that supplies food for Google's operations worldwide. Here's our conversation about the new food revolution. Jonathan Foley, let's talk about global food security, a hot world with 9 billion people. A lot of people would just say the answer is grow more, increase the supply. Is that the solution? In a word, no. It's kind of the uh, food equivalent of drill, baby, drill. You know, it's sort of let's just get more stuff. But we're now exhausting the ability of our agricultural system to simply produce more and more and more. People will say we need to double the amount of food by 2050. That's true if we do nothing about population growth, we do nothing about our diets, and we do nothing about food waste. I think we could do a lot about all three and work both on the supply of food but also how much we demand. Karen Ross, we've had guests here before who say, yeah, we're happy to meet that supply, but is increased supply the answer? Actually, I'm going to say yes in some ways because I really believe that there's much more we can do to optimize the resources that we're using now so that every acre itself can be more productive without tearing out more land, without using more water, without using more fertilizer, and maximizing what we have instead of the traditional way, which has been, let's go tear out another 50 acres of pristine land and irrigate more and add more. I think there's much more we can do with what we already have in production. Helene York, your company is in the business of supplying big institutions, feeding lots of people on a daily basis. 
We are currently feeding 150,000 meals a week. It's a lot of food. What I'm seeing is a lot of smart agriculture. And there are all different sized farmers and producers of food, ranchers, fishermen, aquaculture, that are doing things very, very responsibly and thinking about the limited resources that they have, thinking about the future and saying, I'm not going to have all of this land, all of this pristine water. I need to do things smarter than I've done it in the past. Jonathan Foley, looking globally, many people think about climate change as a future problem. It's here now and today. How is it affecting the food system globally? Generally, we're seeing a much more frequent water stress. Just as population and demand for water generally is going up, the reliability of that water is going down. So that's a really, you know, really big conflict. That's happening all over the world. But there's also the problem of how agriculture contributes to climate change. We usually think of it as an energy problem, and that's kind of true. About 60% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from energy. But um, agriculture releases about 30%, mostly from deforestation, methane coming from cattle and rice fields, and something called nitrous oxide when we over-fertilize fields with too much fertilizer. So on one side, climate change is crucial to the future of agriculture, but agriculture is also critical to the future of addressing our climate problems. Food's a big part of the climate problem and also the solution. We are already impacted. It's not just about the water. It's also more weeds and it's invasive pests. We're seeing in our forests as well as in our ag lands pests occurring in places and zones that they never did before. All of those are huge impacts. But that's exactly where, if we were to take a more integrated resource management approach, holistic approach, when we improve our irrigation practices, we're using less water, we're using less energy, we're reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We do need to do more to invest in soil health. It's like, let's go back to the future and the good old days of how do we build our resiliency and our soil health. There's a lot of things that we can do that can help the smallest growers, anywhere on the planet, but also important for what we do here. Jonathan Foley, some people might say that farmers are profligate, wasteful with water, that they don't pay a reasonable price for the water that they use, and that this is kind of, I don't know, payback comeuppance for them. Your comment on that? Well, thanks for the loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say anybody's wasteful. I think people are doing exactly what they were told. Um, We've set up policies over the years that were incentivizing certain kinds of behaviors, and there's no real market price for water. We're going to have to think differently in the future about water and asking, what do we get for every drop? How much nutrition can we deliver? The good news is that there are huge opportunities to be more efficient. The typical Israeli farm is about 10 times more efficient than the typical American farm in turning water into food. We're 10 times more efficient than the typical farm in India and Pakistan. So there's a hundredfold difference in the efficiency of irrigation. And that's the role of technology. That's the role of innovation. That's the role of maybe some better market signals that water isn't a free good. It's something of public good and has to be accounted for accordingly. In York, people might look to Google. Google brands everything. Google food, okay. Uh, So how is Google approaching food? I think our highest value is really providing good nutrition for everybody. And the way we try to achieve that is to really set a balance. We're very into delicious because you really can't convince people to eat really good food unless you start with deliciousness. And that is really at the core of Bon Appetit's philosophy. You start with good food. More and more, we're introducing plant-centric food, different wonderful vegetables. Take a little bit meat or fish on the top. It'll be our garnish. You believe that free-range chicken requires more time, more feed, more land, more fertilizer, that there's a sort of tension between the environment and humane treatment of animals. Is that right? We have to not choose environmental efficiency always to the nth degree or economic efficiency or animal welfare. I think we have to look at all of these values and balance them and find the sweet spots. Some people might hear that as a defense of big ag. I think that big ag is getting better at balancing these considerations. I have been to more slaughterhouses than I uh, care to mention, and I think that the industry is really evolving. It's not fair to say that all the little guys are good and all the big guys are bad. Jonathan Foley, thinking about big guys, a lot of people think about factory farms. What worries me isn't so much the size of farms. The elephant in the room in a lot of these conversations isn't the size of the actual parcel of land. It's really the disproportionate power 
in a political process that some commodity agricultural systems have. Why do we grow 100 million acres of corn in this country? It doesn't have all that much to do with nutrition or the environment, I can tell you that. So big ag doesn't necessarily mean big parcels of land. It might mean big power blocks that have locked in certain kinds of modes of behavior. We're talking about food and climate change. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Helene York from Bon Appetit Management Company, Karen Ross, Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, and Jonathan Foley, Executive Director of the California Academy of Sciences. Food waste is a big part of the, the issue. Jonathan Foley, let's talk about food waste and how that can be reduced to address the food security situation. Maybe we shouldn't even call it waste. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, uh, not yet used food. Uh, a lot of it's perfectly good. A and I think it, Helene York probably recycles some of it at the Google yeah. uh, cafeteria. And nobody right? wants to be told they're being fed waste. So, <laughs> or um, recycling. Yeah, or <laughs> leftovers. Yeah. Leftovers. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Smart food, we should call it, or something. I don't know. Um, the, the numbers are astonishing. It's about 40% of all the food grown in the world isn't then consumed. Rich countries, it tends to be lost usually around the consumer, in a restaurant, maybe in a cafeteria, maybe in our refrigerators and our Tupperware with lots of good intentions. A lot of developing countries, they grew the food, but maybe it couldn't get harvested in time. Maybe the insects got to it, or maybe it rotted in storage because the trains weren't on time, or the truck didn't get where it was supposed to go. So it's more of an infrastructure problem, not an overconsumption problem. And uh, what a great opportunity. You know, If we're 40% not delivering of what we produce, then find ways to use that. Food waste, quote-unquote, is also often tied to our food safety concerns. Mm -hmm. The labels we have on our yogurt, you know, best used by or whatever, what does that mean? How can yogurt go bad? We tend to throw it out as being risk-averse people. Nobody wants to get sick and have food poisoning, but yet maybe we're throwing away a gold mine. And Karen Ross, composting could be uh, perhaps a constructive use of the food that is wasted so it becomes fuel for future food. Yeah. How do we get more organic stuff, meaning green stuff, food waste out of landfills because of the methane issues. Mm -hmm. How do we get more of that out of there and divert it into compost? Really trying to think about more efficient ways of capturing all of that and making it something that's useful and can take the place of other types of fertilizers and be a part of putting it into our soils and building our soil health and building our resiliency. Our State Board of Food and Agriculture set a goal to double the farm contributions to food banks to 200 million pounds by the year 2015. And there are many ways that's happening. And the food banks are wonderful, wonderful partners for us. That's one way of preventing any of it from going to waste out on the farm itself. Sometimes it's just there's not a market there once it is harvested, and so it's already in the packing house making that contribution. So that's something we're very interested in doing. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Currently, the conventional agriculture system releases nitrous oxide and carbon into the air, whereas if we went to a more diversified farming system that actually encourages soil health by no-till practices, cover cropping, diversified ground cover, that we would then be sequestering huge amounts of carbon in the atmosphere. Jonathan Foley? You know, nature doesn't waste anything. Nature builds its soil, doesn't diminish its soil. It recycles every nutrient. It can use a phosphorus atom like 100 times before it even leaves a square meter of soil. It's incredible. And that's where I think organic agriculture tries to mimic natural systems. I'm a big believer in those kinds of systems, and I think on the whole they're much preferable to a lot of the systems we have. The question may be is how do you bring those to scale? Because right now about 1% of the world's food production is certified organic. That's the nut we've got to crack. Absolutely. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. I was wondering if you guys could talk on urban agriculture. There's a lot of promotion, at least locally, for people to grow and sell their own, but there's also a big debate on the energy and water it takes to do such. So I was wondering if you could talk on that point. Secretary Ross, little small plots right. in, in cities or even some of these buildings with uh, right. vertical farms. On top. I'm a big supporter of that. I think the closer we are to what it takes to produce food, the better informed consumers we're going to be, which then makes us better voters when it comes to things like land use policy and water and all those other things. And I also think it is a wonderful way of teaching youth how to care for something, to really nurture something and follow it all the way through the system, prepare it, and really help inform their eating habits. And it may not be, well, feed the world population, but it's an important supplement 
to feeding the world population. And I think aquaculture in particular is a really important thing that we can do well in urban centers and that there's huge opportunities with that in hydroponics. Helene York? Indoor agriculture, I think, is also a very important set of new technologies that we need to look... You mean in Humboldt County or... no? Well, maybe there too. (laughs) No, I mean, I've I've seen some indoor agriculture that's actually soil-based, not water-based, but very, very low energy, producing enormous amounts of green leafy vegetables with a lot less water, and you don't have runoff, and in warehouses, basically abandoned warehouses. So teaching people agricultural skills, providing very healthy food, and also using a lot less energy than out in the field. We've been discussing farming in the era of climate change with Jonathan Foley, Executive Director of the California Academy of Sciences, Karen Ross, Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, and Helene York from Bon Appetit Management Company. You're listening to Climate One. The growing school of thought that meat, especially beef, has received a bad rap from doctors and environmentalists. This unconventional view asserts that raising cattle, if it's done right, can be good for people and the planet. New research suggests that letting cows roam on rangelands and combining their poop with compost might improve the health of America's soils and fight climate disruption. I'm joined now by three people who see the cow conundrum from different perspectives. Nicolette Hahn Nyman is a cattle rancher and a vegetarian. She's written some meaty books, Defending Beef and the Righteous Pork Chop. Diana Donlin is director of the Cool Foods Campaign at the Center for Food Safety. And Wendy Silver is a professor of ecology at the University of California, Berkeley, where she studies rangeland. Here's our conversation about producing and eating meat. The Food and Agriculture Organization did a landmark study some years ago called Livestock Long Shadow that had a big impact on the way that animal protein is viewed. Wendy Silver, what's your assessment of that report? You know, we've known for a long time that agriculture in general has the potential to emit a lot of greenhouse gases. What we don't hear about all the time is the fact that agriculture also has a chance to be part of the solution. My biggest gripe with Livestock Long Shadow was it was a very one-sided treatment really focused on, you know, what are the potential emissions, what's the bad management that's going on. It gave very little space and and consideration to what the potential sustainability questions are with regard to management. So it wasn't based on a lot of data, but there's more data becoming available. Nicolette Nyman, you're also critical of that report. Anything other than, than what Wendy just said? I think there's a lot in it that's good and correct, but there were quite a few things that I found troubling. For example, it treated very specific problematic ecological behaviors to the entire sector. So specifically, deforestation was an enormous portion of the emissions that were included in the calculations. And while, in fact, deforestation is a really important and urgent issue, almost all of the emissions that the report was talking about are from very specific geographies in the world. So Indonesia, Brazil, Sudan, there are certain parts of the world that are really hot spots for deforestation. Those were attributed to the entire meat sector. In fact, in the United States, the number of forested acres has been steadily increasing for decades. So it has no connection to what ranchers in the United States are doing or the beef that Americans are eating. It was broad brush. One thing that people can do is reduce their meat consumption. Diane Donlin, is that the right thing? Well, at Center for Food Safety, where I work, we draw a distinction between confinement animal agriculture, otherwise known as CAFOs. So factory farms. Factory farms versus animals that are raised outside on grass. And there really is a world of difference between the two. I mean, in the confinement model, that's when you get the heavy dosage of antibiotics that leads to antibiotic resistance, to antibiotic residue in the meat, to the manure lagoons, to the loss of biodiversity, to the groundwater contamination, to a whole suite of issues that are not associated with the correct pasture management. So it's really, for us, a question of management. But the average American today, if they go out and buy beef or hamburger, it's going to be factory meat. 
right? 97% of the meat comes from that system in this country. Only 3% is the grass-fed. Um, so there's a tremendous opportunity to shift away from this terrible model towards a model that can be regenerative. Wendy Silver? Well, in principle, I completely agree. One of the problems is, is that we don't have enough grassland area to support that much cattle production in the U.S. And so my concern is what's going to happen if we push people away from more confined animal feeding operations, that's going to lead to deforestation as we import more beef from places like the Amazon or Indonesia or Africa, where people are deforesting to grow meat for an export market. So we also need to look at, I hesitate to say what people often consider bad words like confined animal operations, but other uh, management approaches and do a better job of managing those environments as well. I just don't think that we're going to be able to make it on grass alone. Because there's not enough grass. Nicolette Nyman? I think that's a matter definitely for debate. The Savory Institute, which is based in Colorado, has specifically looked at quantifying that issue. If you took all of the cattle out of the feedlots and returned them to grass, could you produce all of the meat for current demands? And they found that actually there's a 30% surplus in the United States in terms of the total amount of land that would be required to do that. So I think that point is definitely up for debate. Stopping eating factory meat and eating the the grass-fed stuff, doesn't that send a signal that there's more growth there? I think that's exactly what is already happening because the grass-fed beef sector is the fastest-growing sector in the beef industry. In fact, overall consumption of beef has been declining in the United States for several decades. But there's been a rise in grass-fed beef consumption. So there's a recognition that we need to move in that direction among the conventional beef industry. This idea of a corn farmer suddenly uh, not raising corn anymore and, and, and having grass and, and cows on that land, could that corn farmer make as much money with cow pastures as they could with corn? Is that well, an, even an economically well, viable option? If you considered all of the inputs that are required for any kind of crop production, you know, the seeds and the labor, the fossil fuels, all of the agricultural chemicals that are added, and you compare that to simply allowing the land to be undisturbed except for the presence of the animals grazing on it, the math is quite different. So, yes, I think that that could be economically viable. Diane Donlin? In perennial grains that were deep-rooted, What that deep root mass does is hold the soil carbon way down there. When you have this annual production, you have very shallow roots, and you have the carbon going right back into the atmosphere. Wendy Silver, you're an expert on rangelands, grasslands. Tell us what percentage of the world's lands are these grasslands, and why are they important? Why should we care about grasslands? Rangelands or grasslands cover, on a global scale, about 30% of the land surface. It's the dominant cover type and the dominant land use type globally. These sectors growing can have a very large impact on greenhouse gas dynamics and the potential to mitigate greenhouse gas dynamics by using a key resource, which nobody wants to call a resource, but is cattle manure, the poop that we don't really like to think about. But the bottom line is it's a huge emission source and also a huge potential offset if we can convert that to things like fertilizer. Nicolette Nyman, you write in your book that when cows poop, you celebrate. Never thought about a cow poop as a cause for celebration. (laughs) When you're thinking about Um, food production from an ecosystem standpoint, you really have to think about all of the nutrients and how they're utilized. And today, especially the animal sector in the United States and and much of the world, you have a complete segmentation where the feed is grown and then it's transported to the animals. And then there's so much manure and then you have to transport the manure away from the place where the animals are. And so you just have this complete separation of the natural resources and the land and the animals. It's It's not a connected and regenerative system. So what's great about cattle on pasture is that you have that whole cycle taking place. You have the capture of the solar energy in the vegetation that's coming up out of the ground, and then the animals are using that. They're converting it miraculously, really, to meat and milk, and then humans are using that food. And as those animals are growing and living on that space, they're not only returning the manure, but they're also returning their urine. So you're actually utilizing the resources in that ecosystem in a much more sensible way than animals that are being separated from the land. So, yes, manure on a pasture-based farm is, is a cause for celebration. 
Wendy Silver, compost can come into the picture here, and how can manure and compost be combined in a way that can really change landscapes and, and become a resource and help the climate situation? Yeah, that's a really good question, because one of the problems about separating the, the cows, you know, taking them off the rangeland is that manure that's piling up. If you take that material and you just spread it back out on the rangelands, you have a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, particularly nitrous oxide, which is a super potent greenhouse gas. But if you mix it with agricultural waste or urban green waste and you compost it, you dramatically lower the rate at which it emits greenhouse gases. From a one-time application of compost, just a dusting on rangelands, we've seen an increase in plant growth for six years. And we see an increase in the soil carbon storage, not just from the stuff we added in that compost, but also from the plants that are growing. And is this happening anywhere in, in real life? I mean, are ranchers doing this? Yes, actually, they are. So we've done multi-year studies on multiple sites uh, where we've been able to control the environment and really do these experiments well. We got the idea, though, from the ranchers. They said, well, you know, we've been taking all of these wastes that we've been paying to get shipped off of our land and composting it with whatever we can get, almond hulls, other agricultural waste products they get for free or get for cheap, mixing it in, and then just having these compost rows on their, their ranches. We actually saw low, low greenhouse gas emissions, much lower than we predicted, and the amount of carbon gain in the ecosystem way more than offset the amount of carbon lost. Diana Donlin, how could this be part of a climate solution? There's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. Our oceans are acidifying because there's too much CO2 in our oceans, but our soils are actually starving for carbon. And so we have this world of opportunity to rebuild soils around the world It's low cost, it's low risk, it doesn't involve geoengineering, it can be done universally, it can be done at scale. So it's really exciting to bring to this climate conversation in addition to focusing on emission reduction. Nicolette Nyman, if composting has such great potential, why aren't we doing more of it? There's so much entrenchment in the status quo. I mean, the entire system is heavily dependent on and connected with the fossil fuel industry, with the chemical industry, with the pharmaceutical industry, and none of those entities want it to radically change. So there are massive obstacles towards any kind of big shift, but at the same time, lots of small um, movements in that direction, I think, are, are beginning to happen, and I think there's reason for optimism. We're talking about cows and rangelands at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Nicolette Hahn Nyman is author of Defending Beef. Wendy Silver, professor of ecology at UC Berkeley. And Diana Donlin, Cool Foods Program Director at the Center for Food Safety. You can join the conversation at Twitter using our handle at Climate One and listen to podcasts in the iTunes store. Diana Donlin, tell us about Russ Lester. He is an organic farmer up in Dixon, and he has a walnut orchard. And he was telling me that he's been composting on his land and his orchard for years and built up the soil organic (coughs) matter and as a result has weathered the drought better because soil is a sponge and when it's living and healthy it can hold a lot of a lot of water in fact NRCS the uh, Natural Resources Conservation Department of the United States tells us that if there's 1% organic matter in the soil in the top 6 inches of the um, soil profile, it can hold 27,000 gallons of water. Alan Savory is a controversial figure in grasslands areas. He talks about erosion, desertification. Diana Donlin, what do you think of Alan Savory? He's a wildlife biologist who grew up in Zimbabwe. And I think that he's polarizing because he has a really unusual approach. But I met a young woman who works with him named Precious Fury. And Precious is a woman that grew up hungry in Zimbabwe. And the figures are pretty astounding. The country of Zimbabwe, only 1% of the land is arable, um, 9% with irrigation, but 90% of the country is desertified. And so Precious works with the communities where she lives to implement this rotational grazing, and they've had significant results in terms of the grassland restoration, biodiversity restoration, and water holding capacity. So um, as much as I admire Alan, I really admire Precious because she is living it and, and spreading this effective tool. Nicolette Nyman, Alan Savory. He doesn't like or believe in feedlots or the industrialized um, way of raising cattle, so the cattle industry doesn't like him. Ranchers (laughs) generally are skeptical of him. 
And environmentalists and vegans don't like him because he thinks that cattle are part of the solution, and most of them tend to think that they're part of the problem. So it's very obvious why he's controversial. What he's talking about is that we had enormous herds of grazing animals, large megafauna that covered much of the globe, and that essentially those animals are almost gone today on the globe. And without those animals, we can't have properly functioning ecosystems. And so he argues that domesticated cattle are the single best way to mimic those disappeared wild animals. And I think that's a very credible argument. It just makes a lot of sense. Wendy Silver, is Alan Savory credible? I think he's uh, raised a lot of awareness, which has been a very positive thing. My primary concern comes from prescriptive management approaches that he's arguing for that have no basis, unfortunately, in the scientific literature. Taking high-intensity numbers, you know, large, it's called high-intensity short-duration grazing, is not likely to work in many parts of the world. And in fact, in many parts of the world, it could have a detrimental effect, and there's no data to support that there's an increase in carbon storage in these ecosystems, especially in these soils, with these practices. So I don't want people to go shifting their land management to something that may not work without any good information to support it. New York Times recently did a big expose on lab meat, this factory in Nebraska. Do you have views, Wendy Silver, on lab meat, sort of growing meat in test tubes? Is that something that, uh, how do you feel about that? Managed landscapes are pulling carbon into the atmosphere for us via photosynthesis. So why would you want to take that into the laboratory where you're not going to get that carbon gain? We want to keep that grass and the greenness out there because that's what's giving us that carbon sink into the soil. We're talking about beef and cattle at Climate One. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. My name is Mark Lee. Um, I was wondering, is there a website uh, available for an average citizen just look at uh, let's say, the uh, carbon footprint or the methane footprint for a serving of uh, beef, an eight-ounce serving of beef or eight-ounce serving of chicken, to kind of compare what the difference uh, in terms of possible ranges of carbon or methane output are. We have something up from Natural Resources Defense Council on our refrigerator at home, but Wendy Silver? I contributed to that document that they put together, which is <coughs> called the Meat Eater's Guide, and it was rigorously reviewed. All of the information is all cited. All the literature is out there cited, available for anybody who wants to get on that website and look it up. Diana Donlin? I'm not a big fan of the Meat Eater's Guide, and here's the reason why. It equates animals to cars, and... I think it was around the 1940s, all the land-grant universities shifted from having departments of animal husbandry to departments of animal science. So we went from thinking about shepherding animals and taking care of them to thinking of them as a commodity, the way we would a widget, a car, a refrigerator, or what have you. And I think that that's partially what got us into this mess. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. My name is John Haveman. I'm a local economist who pays a lot of attention to these issues. On 1.5 acres, you can produce about 37,000 pounds of plant-based food. On that same 1.5 acres, you can produce about 375 pounds of meat for food. So I'm left wondering why merely changing the way that animal-based agriculture is done is still better than advocating for a diet where you could take one acre and use it for producing food in the other 17 acres and perhaps rewild that, you know, create more green space. Wendy Silver, a lot of scientists say animal-based protein is a real climate problem. The trend needs to be away from animal-based protein. So I just want to make a point that I'm not advocating. I'm just providing data. I think that this is a choice, a personal choice that people need to make. Secondly, I think we've got to look at those numbers a little bit more carefully. A lot of times people don't consider the full life cycle of the impact of different agricultural choices. So, for example, if you look at growing crop agriculture and you look at the inorganic fertilizer that's used to grow that or the water that needs to be used to grow those crops year after year after year after year when land becomes depleted in nutrients and you need to add it back in, because unlike cows where we're recycling some of that carbon and nutrients, with a lot of crop agriculture we're not. We're harvesting a lot of that off. So it requires inputs. The greenhouse gas costs of of producing inorganic fertilizer is huge. So I think we need more information to make better informed choices. Let's go to our question, last one. Welcome to Climate One. I wonder what food story you might want us to hear as we're making the decisions that we make. 
There's a nice ending. Diana Donlin? Sure. I'd love to tell you about a guy named Ridge Shin who is based in the Northeast. He's a rancher, and he raises grass-fed beef, and he was concerned about climate change, of course. So this man decided that he would aggregate 5,000 head of cattle, all from the northeastern states, and instead of having them be finished off in Nebraska, where they would be put on a train and be finished there, that he would finish them in his home region, and so that it would be completely self-contained. So they would grow from birth to slaughter, um, hopefully with a humane slaughter, within this eco-shed and break that cycle of starting your life, doing the right thing, and then ending feeding into this system, which so many people have a problem with. So that's a story that I think is very promising because it just shows that there are things happening all around the country and all around the world. We have been discussing the place for beef on the dinner plate with cattle rancher Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, Diana Donlin from the Center for Food Safety, and University of California Berkeley professor Wendy Silver. You're listening to Climate One. investigation of the threat to our food security must of course include the vital topic of chocolate and coffee and beer. Along with our meat and veggies, these other products are being impacted by the droughts and storms brought on by climate disruption. But producers are devising some ingenious ways to save energy and support farmers while protecting these oh-so-vital crops. So let's now turn to three people who are well-versed in the pleasures of chocolate, coffee, and beer. Brad Kinser is chief chocolate maker at Cho Chocolate. Paul Katzeff is founder and CEO of the Thanksgiving Coffee Company. And Ken Grossman is co-founder and CEO of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Here's our conversation about beans and brew. Brad Kinzer, when you were going to college in Vermont, did you notice the impacts of climate change? I studied uh, dendrology or the study of trees, and my dendrology professor used to always say, hey, guess what, guys? It's a great time to buy land in northern Canada. And, um, <laughs> this is 20 never, years ago? Yeah, about 20 years ago now. I thought he was being a little dramatic, but then more and more as I studied the natural environment of Vermont and saw how the seasons were changing and... Yeah, it's definitely something that was happening. Yeah, and maple syrup, the freeze and thaw cycles, the insect uh, infestation, those sorts of things. Ken Grossman, you're an outdoorsman. When did you first notice the impact of climate change in your outdoor activities? Being close to the Sierras, we saw a lack of snowpack but on a more regular basis, and obviously we're, we're suffering from that currently at a pretty drastic level. Paul Katzeff, you uh, grow raspberries, and that was one of your early indicators of climate change. Tell us about how uh, your raspberries were affected. I used to be the raspberry king of Mendocino County because <laughs> my raspberries ripen two weeks to two days before the county fair, which is absolutely perfect. And then, about 10 years ago, my raspberries began to ripen later and later. So my raspberries no longer can be entered into the county fair. That's when I, I began to um, notice a change. So... Ken Grossman, tell us the Sierra Nevada story. You've been sustainably oriented really from the beginning. So fuel cells, solar cells, tell us the sustainability story of Sierra Nevada. Initially, it was out of necessity. We didn't have any money, so we pretty much built everything from old dairy equipment. And I built the kettle and the mash tun and louder tun and all that stuff early on to, to get started. There was no suppliers back when I started in the late 70s. And then as we've grown, we've invested resources to try to do as good of a job as we can to manage our resources and our inputs. So we were an early adopter of fuel cell power. Nearly 10 years ago, we put in a megawatt fuel cell plant, uh, one of the largest in the country. Uh, we've got more than 10,000 solar panels on the facility. We have enough fuel cell and solar power that we're an exporter uh, during most days. Uh, we've got a biogas digester, so we, we create some, some gas. Uh, we just built a, a brewery in North Carolina. It's got uh, solar as well as gas turbines off of um, methane produced from wastewater digestion. So North Carolina outlawed sea level rise. And how did going in there and building a lead factory, how did that go? Overall, we were very well supported and encouraged. We were innovators, and so a lot of the local engineering firms really hadn't done 
uh, a lot of the kind of water recovery projects that we were putting in place. So it was a, a bit of a learning curve for, for the locals, but I think overall we've been very well supported in our efforts. Brad Kinzer, how about sustainability at Cho? What are you doing there to kind of lighten the footprint? We buy cocoa beans from Ecuador, Peru, Dominican Republic, uh, in West Africa and Ghana. And we're really committed to organic, reducing the use of unnecessary pesticides, chemicals in the growing process. We also have made a choice to actually keep some of the processing done at country of origin to reduce the overall uh, carbon footprint. Those things are some of the steps that we've taken. Ken Grossman, big beer companies, are they greenwashing? Are there real sustainability things happening at the, the mega breweries these days? And I think uh, the brewing industry in general has done a pretty good job of, of being uh, stewards of, of the environment and, and working towards lessening their impacts. The larger corporations, I think, are more challenged than, than smaller brewers are because of you know, stockholders and, and boards of directors who may not see the long-term benefit of some of the investments. But things like water footprint is certainly focused on by global brewers, and you know, energy conservation is being driven in part by manufacturers of brewing equipment in Germany because energy is so expensive there. Paul Katzeff, you've been involved in sustainability for a long time in the coffee industry, so tell us how your evolution of thinking in terms of sustainability in coffee and what that means. Somewhere around 1985, I made my first visit to a coffee-growing country. I'd been roasting coffee for about 15 years, and I had focused completely on the product. Buy cheap, great stuff, make money. And I had always felt that the farmers were the enemy. And when I got to Nicaragua, and I actually saw the poverty of 500 years of coffee trade, I was overwhelmed. And that happened to coincide with my being elected president of our National Trade Association, the Specialty Coffee Association of America. So I had a bully pulpit to express my new vision of switching to people instead of product. And I used Thanksgiving Coffee Company and the Specialty Coffee Association position that I had to create a power base to express new ideas. But sustainability was a slow process of divining for the coffee industry. First, it was the environment. Save the environment. The trees were coming down to grow coffee in the sun. This was not good for migratory songbirds. It wasn't good for monkeys. Uh, it wasn't good for anything. A couple of years later, I recognized that the environment wasn't the only issue, that there were issues with social justice. And the coffee industry was harming people so social justice was the second leg of the sustainability curve. And then fair trade occurred somewhere around 1999. The fair trade movement began, and Thanksgiving Coffee Company was the second company to join that movement. So economic justice became an aspect of the, of the Environment Committee. And then the next generation of people in the coffee industry renamed it the Sustainability Committee. Brad Kinzer, you told me something that sounds yes. amazing to me, that some of the chocolate makers, people growing cacao, had never actually tasted chocolate before. It is, it is pretty amazing. Actually, 75% uh, of the world's cocoa is coming from West Africa, where cocoa farmers are making a couple dollars a day, and if they do have a, an extra dollar, it's probably not going to go for a chocolate bar. So that's a huge challenge for us as an industry, is when the people that are supplying most of our cocoa and raw materials are completely disconnected from what it is that that product is really being used for. And when the cocoa farmers or coffee farmers actually understand how what they're doing on the farm level directly impacts the quality, you're immediately creating a, a better feedback system where um, you can really get a better quality cocoa and that directly leads to uh, you know, a better profit for farmers and more sustainability. Paul Kessef, you want farmers to be able to work smart, not hard. And I believe that quality of coffee and quality of life go hand in hand. You don't have to be a starving artist to produce great art, and you don't have to be a starving farmer to produce great coffee. Actually, it's better if you're not starving. And we can use our companies as bully pulpits or as educational devices to change the world. 
I'm Greg Dalton, and we're listening to Climate One today. Our guests are Ken Grossman, co-founder and CEO of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Paul Katzev, co-founder and CEO of Thanksgiving Coffee Company, and Brad Kinser, chief chocolate maker at Cho Chocolate. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One programs are available in the iTunes store. So, Paul Katzev, let's get to how climate change is affecting coffee growers and other people who are, by definition, quite poor. Right now, there's something called La Roya. It's a, a mold, and... It requires moisture and warmth, and the best coffees are grown at high altitudes, maybe four to 6,000 feet where it's been cool and not moist. But now, 75% of Guatemala's crop and 40% of Nicaragua's crop has been destroyed by La Roya, and La Roya is moving up the mountainside, and uh, farms all over, all over Central and South America are facing this problem. Do the farmers recognize a connection with climate change? Do they connect those dots? Or they they just... Farmers are our best resource for connecting the dots, but they have to be part of cooperatives because there's a lot of education, a lot of great programs, and caring goes on at cooperatives. Fair trade is not only about a minimum price for a product. It's all about cooperatives. It's a marketing system that levels the playing field for small-scale farmers. Ken Grossman, one particular extreme weather event may not be directly attributed to climate change, but there are some broad patterns that are hitting the beer industry. So tell us about that, Yakima Valley and other places. Right. We had one of the worst barley harvests on record, and it wasn't because of a lack of water. It was because of uh, too much water at the wrong time. Most of the barley we purchased is dry land farmed, and a lot of it got heavily rained and snowed on, uh, which caused it to sprout out in the field and, and make it pretty unsuitable for brewing beer. So On the hop side, a lot of the traditional hop-growing regions in North America have been seeing climates uh, shifting to temperatures that do not facilitate some uh, varieties from doing very well. So it is affecting what varieties will grow where, and farmers are taking notice that what had been a traditional harvest window is now moving quite a bit, like your berries, that they're having to move their harvest times. Miller is experimented with putting cassava in beer, trying to diversify their inputs, right? So they're not mm-hmm. so dependent on hops, barley, etc. So that there's different crops in a climate destabilized world, they can shift their resources around. Yeah, I mean, barley is the best thing to make beer out of. So um, <laughs> a, a lot of the other starch sources are used, sorghum and, and other things are used in other parts of the world where barley doesn't grow well. But Barley has all the natural enzymes that can produce the sugars that make the best beer. Let's talk about solutions. What are industries doing to address the impacts, you know, impacts on chocolate, beer, coffee, climates affecting our business? We need to do something about it. Paul Kessef, is coffee doing that? I would say that it's our labels. I use my labeling in my products to promote ideas. I partner with Defenders of Wildlife to Save the Wolves. On the shelf, you'll see a wolf face looking right at you with beautiful brown eyes. And we partner with, with Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund International, and you can see a beautiful picture of a gorilla, which I took that picture, got that close. And with the American Birding Association, we're promoting ideas through our back label and our front label. That's one thing that we can do. We have an audience. Once we reach a certain point where our brand is respected for its authenticity and character, we have to use that in some way to educate the rest of America about the things that we know. Okay, so is Cho Chocolate a product company or is there a social change element to Cho Chocolate? You know, as a chocolate maker, my greatest challenge is the huge geographic, cultural, and socioeconomic gap that exists between myself here and the farmers that are growing my product. About um, climate change, you know, in West Africa in particular, one of the things that we're seeing is that you know, it looks like the dry season for cocoa in a lot of these regions is just going to become more severe. And so that really puts cocoa, the plant, at risk. One of the answers to that is finding new varietals that will actually be less susceptible to drought. Potentially planting and uh, monitoring for drought resistance or disease resistance and making sure that they taste great as well. Can GMOs help with drought resistance and other things? Let's get to you quickly, Brad Kinzer. You know, I'm sure they could. There's not a lot of GMO work that's been done in cocoa. GMO coffee, Paul Kinzer? The specialty coffee industry is opposed to GMO coffee. Even using GMO to make trees grow without caffeine is something we're opposed to because the coffee industry is composed mostly of small family businesses. 
with a high level of education in the people who are running it. And these people, these businesses, and these families are opposed to GMOs, as I think most of America might be anyway. Ken Grossman, GMO, probably not among craft beer breweries, probably more than some of the large industrial breweries. Yeah, at this point, there's no GMO barley or hops. There has been a, a fairly large opposition, I think, from the small brewers about the GMOing of barley. What's been happening with barley acreage, it's been declining pretty rapidly uh, in North America and being replaced by corn, soybeans, GMO crops. And we're finding more diseases coming in from those crops that are affecting barley, but also just displacing the acreage. I will say a lot of the farmers, though, are wanting to see GMO development so that the yields of barley can compete with soybeans and corn. And so there is pressure from farming communities that, you know, if we're going to grow barley for you, either you've got to pay a lot more for it or um, we need GMOs to enhance the productivity of the product. But from our standpoint, no, GMO is not the direction we would want to see the industry go. This is Climate One talking about beans and brew. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. I was wondering if you can put a perspective on what you're noticing in the industry climate change is doing to the product. Is it really, really rapid? Put a real perspective on how it's changing, say, compared to 25 years ago. Is it accelerated? Paul Kassif? We've been seeing some really rapid changes in the last five years. Devastating crops, acreage moving up the mountainside. I mean, there's a top to a mountain. At that point, there's nothing left. So we're talking about reviving the Robusta industry. Robusta is the poor stepchild of the Arabica variety. High caffeine content, low flavor content. So there's a whole new industry being developed as we speak in Uganda and Brazil and Colombia. It's happening and our industry is responding. And consumers are going to have to begin to shift their desire and love for that sweet, fruity flavor into something that's a little different. Next question. Yes, welcome. Well, I want to look a little forward, and, and I'm curious how much you guys are looking at practices like rotational grazing or reforestation. I'm talking about permaculture, one of the really good tools for designing a more sustainable, more just future. Brad Kinzer, permaculture is a, a really, to me, it's just great, great stuff. It's, it's innovation that is cost-effective, and it, it's focused on individual cases, and that's what's critical for sustainability is for each farmer. Every farmer in the world of cocoa is going to have their own interesting situation going on, and some might be faced with drought, some might be faced with diseases, and they need to find their own unique system to, to make that work, and I think permaculture certainly can play a role in that. And, you know, not just permaculture, but also just technical assistance helping them understand how to identify diseases. A lot of cocoa farmers, they might not even know what certain diseases are. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of work to be done in technical assistance, and I think that that can, that can go a really, really long way. And I've seen it go a really long way um, in terms of productivity and, and ultimately sustainability for the farmer. Paul Katzeff? You've got to stick with your farmer. That's really important. As they go through the struggle and transition in this time, flavors change because the soil changes and the climate changes. So people in the coffee industry, roasters, have to stay with and help the farmers grow into this new time and not just say, well, your coffee doesn't taste good this year. I'm not buying it. Because if you have any caring about that farm family, you have to go through that process with them. In the long run, you secure your supply for the long run because... You care about them. We have been discussing the guilty pleasures with Brad Kinser, chief chocolate maker at Cho Chocolate, Paul Katzeff, founder and CEO of Thanksgiving Coffee Company, and Ken Grossman, co-founder and CEO of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Thank you for joining us this hour. Free podcasts of this and other conversations on energy, water, and food are available on our new website. Check it out at climate-one.org. Climate One is a sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The editor is Claire Schoen. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. 
Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.